Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brown. This week I spoke to Kevin Concannon, a name I like saying a great deal. Kevin Concannon is Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California and author of Assembling Early Christianity, Trade Networks and the Letters of Dionysius of Corinth, 2017. Man, I ain't read that book yet, but from talking to the geezer it's going to be intense because he gets into some real post-structuralist breakdown gear let me tell you it's, it's, it's an interesting listen because it's someone whom I have a very different perspective on reality and it's, sometimes he's quite mired in that stuff but it's very it's interesting I think and he's got a lot of information and a lot of data that will be pretty useful to you I reckon so have a good listen hey listen I'm coming to Australia New Zealand and Canada with my new show Recovery Live I'm going to be from February March and April that's Canada and New Zealand all that go check out the website russellbrand.com I'm in the States in May and June come and see me come and see me I think there's like experiences where you can actually meet me and meditate can you imagine that would that be enough for both of us also, I'm speaking at the Santa Barbara on the 12th of February, the California Jam in Costa Mesa on the 14th of February, and, and, and I'll be in San Diego on the 19th of February. If you're interested in any of them dates, go to russellbrand.com. Sign up to my mailing list at the same address. Get all sorts of new data about courses and whatnot and various festivities. Remember, you can... Uh, e What's the help email? Why are we not promoting that no more? So people come... Shrunk down into nothing. Oh, it's all Hello. Well, just to email me, because I want to hear from you. I want to know what you feel. Reach out to me. Reach right out. Okay, so sign up to that. If you uh, Go on my YouTube channel as well, Russell Brand, and uh, subscribe to that. You get all little spiritual videos and these vlogs that we're doing now. Like them, watch them, send them around, would you? If you want to get in touch with me on social media, I'm at Rusty Rockets on Twitter with a hashtag under the skin. If you've got any questions about this podcast or comments, Instagram, I'm at Russell Brand. Same on TikTok, same on Insta on uh, LinkedIn. So go check me out there. But now let's listen to Kevin Concannon, Professor Kevin Concannon. It's a good name, isn't it? Kevin Concannon. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Kevin Concannon, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, I'm so excited. Uh, you, you know so many things that I'm very, very <laughs> interested in. And also you're called Kevin Concannon, which is it's the best name I've said for a long time. Right, my parents will be happy that you said that. Kevin Concannon. <laughs> you are a professor of religion at the University of Southern California. What is your particular area of expertise, sir? So I'm a scholar of New Testament and early Christianity, which means I basically cover kind of the origins of Christianity. So I'm a historian of how Christianity got its start and uh, of more or less the first couple centuries of it as a movement. Are you Christian? That is a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that broadly speaking, I would say that I am connected to the Christian tradition in the sense that I was uh, committed to Christianity as a believer for a while and um, still probably think in some of those terms about reality, but I'm not necessarily what you would call a kind of traditional believing Christian um, who goes to church every Sunday, that sort of thing. I still, I'm more or less someone who is fascinated by Christianity, thinks it's very interesting to understand, uh, thinks understanding it is really important. Um, yeah, could yeah. there be a more significant cultural force 
in our times other than perhaps mm-hmm. capitalism. Right, yes. Um, so, Kevin, before we were just briefly touched on the distinction between a historian of Christianity, which is what mm-hmm. you are, and a theologian, yeah. could you help me to understand that more clearly? Too? Yeah, so I'm, I'm someone who studies Christianity as a historical movement or a series of movements. Um, and so I read... Uh, Christian texts, so I look at Christian remains from antiquity and think about how they help us tell a story um, in a historical mode. Like a historian sort of asks, like, what happened or what can we say about what happened in the past? Um, And a theologian would be someone who looks at those materials, who treats them as um, normative or as 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 text or materials that can be used to say something about God or about um, the nature of reality or about how people should live, and then would tell a story about about why people should believe or act a certain way. Um, I uh, so I I try to talk about like what happened, not necessarily the facts, because historians are are we don't necessarily always produce facts in a kind of dry sense. Um, we tell our own stories, we work with our materials, with our sets of questions. Um, but I'm not a theologian in that I'm not my history my my historical study of early Christianity isn't about telling people what the nature of reality is or how they need to be as people. When looking at early Christianity, what are the most obvious distinctions between uh, the presumed Christianity of the prophet Jesus Christ and the subsequent canonical institutions mm-hmm. that uh, follow. Yeah. I would say one of the things that that biblical scholars tend to um, tend to sort of take as an operating principle is that there's a lot that we don't know. Um, most modern Christian narratives presume that we know a lot about Jesus, about the early Christians, and that there's kind of one story to that, that there was Jesus and then he dies, resurrects, then there's a kind of movement and that movement goes and succeeds and then takes over the Roman Empire and then you get Western history. Um, that's pretty scho- good. That was right. A um, brief, pricey. That's very brief, yeah. <laughs> Here um, we are. And scholars of early Christianity recognize that it's so much messier than that, that that narrative just doesn't hold up um, and that early Christianity was a whole variety of different movements and different theologies and different interests um, spread that kind of spread slowly in really strange ways across the Mediterranean, um, many of which had very some some had different memories of the historical Jesus than we might have in, in a kind of sense of common day modern Christianity. And um, so it's messier than you would expect. Some of these texts uh no longer preeminent in our understanding mm-hmm. of Christ and Christianity. Are they somewhat forgotten? One of the areas that interests me, mm-hmm. Kevin, is the uh, Chris, uh, the attributes of Christ that look to correlate with earlier uh, qualities of gods from different religions, mm-hmm. like, say, Osiris or Dionysus, yeah. the mm-hmm. idea of the buried god, the resurrected god, the virgin birth, mm-hmm. those kind of motifs that are not uniquely and specifically Christian. And therefore, is, there is perhaps an argument for them being mythic as mm-hmm. opposed to historical. Are there accounts that we that are sort of verifiable or that, that, that are in alignment with what we understand Christ to be? And also, are there 
uh, accounts mm-hmm. that are that contradict it. Well, what I would say what I would say is this is that um, there are a lot of different stories about Jesus that circulate in early Christianity. There are four versions of that that make it into this thing that we call the New Testament. Those four have a variety of viewpoints amongst themselves. They don't all agree, and they have very different notions of who Jesus was and why he was important. There were a lot of other early Christian texts that told very different stories of Jesus, some of which have survived from antiquity that we still have access to, and some of which— Like Gnostic Gospels, like Thomas and Mary and that. Right. There's like the Gnostic Gospels. There's also Gospel—there's like a—there's an an infancy Gospel of Jesus as a little kid performing miracles and like smiting people in his village um, (laughs) called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas— um, and you know, there's just in people in the village. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of, it's, it's one of these stories. That's a really fun story to, to read. Um, more like Krishna, like naughty mischief, Jesus. Yeah. Well, it's, he's less naughty than he is just sort of like creepily otherworldly. And so like, so like he sits, so like, there's like a, like the, I think if I remember correctly, the vignette is that he kind of, one of the early vignettes is he's kind of sitting by the river, making birds out of mud and the Sabbath. And then a rabbi comes up to him and says, you shouldn't be doing that because the Sabbath and he's then he turns them into birds and they fly away. So like a little mischievous there. But then another another vignette is he's walking through town and like some kid bumps into him and like it um and it bothers Jesus that someone bumped into him. So like he he smites the kid basically. Um so the kid dies and like and and Joseph, I mean the whole like Joseph, his dad is just like freaking out the whole time. They try to take him to school, but he keeps he keeps like scaring off all the teachers because he knows too much. It's a at times funny, at times creepy story. Um a little of that survives in that, you know, mm-hmm. Christ in the temple with the you know teaching right. the teachers that mm-hmm. bit when he's a little boy of oh, you should have known to look for me in my father's house, that yes. bit. Yeah. But much of that is gone. Does that mm-hmm. suggest, Kevin, that um, much of doctrinaire Christianity mm-hmm. is about the instantiation of principles that are useful in creating uh, empire, empire, I want to say empirical, but I don't mm-hmm. want you to think I'm saying empirical, empirical yeah. sort of structure rather than an access point to divinity? I mean, I think that, I think that, when people tell stories in 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 amongst early Christians about Jesus, they're talking they're talking about like what is what's what is the what's the nature of ultimate reality? Like what's what's God like? Um, what um, what are the models of of living that we should we should live by? Um, they they're using stories about Jesus to think about their own lives, um, and that means that there are a lot of different ways to tell that story because people live very different lives and have very different interests and needs. And so Jesus, the stories about Jesus tend to help answer those questions for the people who are writing them. So I think, I mean, at least as a historian, I tend to look at these things as sort of there's a reason why these communities produce these texts. They tend to produce them for their own needs and purposes. Right. Um, and, you know, to kind of get back to the, the question of sort of the multiplicities of Jesus that you that you that you kind of introduced, like there were just a, there are a lot of these stories about Jesus that circulate around Um and in the in the 19th century, it became really common for a very early iteration of historical biblical scholarship to to um, connect stories of Jesus to ancient other ancient mythologies. Um, and this was a group of German scholars that we call the History of Religions uh, School. Um, and they they tried to make connections between mystery cults and Osiris and these sort of like longer this longer history of a kind of um, re- series of kind of embedded religious traditions that Jesus became kind of an, a, kind of an instantiation of. Um, and um, modern historians have more or less kind of given up on the idea that there are these kind of 
that there's a kind of sub-religion that kind of floats underneath all of these historical instantiations, um, and turn to the idea that basically Jesus, as a legendary figure, by the time he's written about, has already been imbued with um, concepts that are floating around the ancient Mediterranean. So um, to give an example of this, by all accounts, Jesus would have been someone who would have been wandering around Palestine speaking in Aramaic. The only sources that we have of Jesus are in Greek. So already his teachings and his story, by the time they become in any way accessible to us, have been translated into a different language and a language with it that ha- brings with it its own concepts, its own ideas, its own connections to philosophical discussions. Um, so any access we have to the historical Jesus is mediated by a translation process that is w- already done by the time we've even got any textual information. Can we conclude that there is something universal or at least enduring uh, about the ideas embodied or enshrined in the Christ myth or the Christ history, depending on your perspective? Or is it, as you seem to suggest earlier, more likely that there's a kind of utility to these narratives at their point of construction and in their ongoing relevance that that isn't necessarily about the sublime, but is... You know, in a way, I suppose what I'm pointing to is the sort of popular argument that contemporary Christianity seems abstracted from the ideas that that exist even in the four Gospels. Mm -hmm. Poverty, denial of materialism, you know, like non-judgment, sort of quite, you know, uh, I don't know, mystical principles that are not necessarily about... Mm -hmm ethical judgment of others. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way I would think about it is that is that once you take something like a like a text and you make it into a scripture. So you take What's the it, difference? Well, um scriptures basically basically are are texts that have been sort of set aside. They've been set out from your typical processes of interpretation. And and a scripture is something that has to be constantly reaffirmed by a community. So um Christians have to constantly reaffirm that the Bible is their scripture. It's just it's something that, not something that they do consciously. It's just something that happens in the kind of the daily use and reuse of that of that scriptural text, that written text. And um, part of the role of a scripture is to is to be continually useful, to can be to be continually relevant, and it requires a kind of process of reinterpretation. And so Christians have always reinterpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted the Bible. Once it became a kind of fixed canon, and it's a little bit like the example that I would that I that I often use in my in my teaching is comes from a, a scholar of religion named Jay Z Smith, and Jay Z Smith would say that look, um, a, a canon functions a lot like the way that we eat. So there's all sorts of things in the world that that we we could eat. You could eat polar bears. You could eat seals, we could eat dolphins, we could eat cows. Um, And people choose, every culture kind of chooses a limited range of the things that we can eat um, to eat. So they they make a kind of fence around certain kinds of things. And then that kind of limitation, which is similar to how a canon functions, you kind of limit what are the sacred texts that you can work with. Um, What that does is it produces cuisine. It means that we have to get creative and we cook chicken 600 different ways. We cook pork 600 different ways. Um, And we get creative. It unlocks human creativity. 
In the same way, when you when you create a fixed canon of scriptures, it unlocks human creativity in the sense that people have to make those texts speak again and again and again in new and fresh ways. So um, I think it is true that there are there are parts of the uh, New Testament canon for in, for in particular, or even the, the Bible as a whole, that do talk about justice, that talk about um, care for the poor, care for the outsider, care for the immigrant. Those are traditions that are there. They're texts that say those things. Um, but religious believers don't always see those texts as relevant in the, like, in the same way that someone who's just reading it outside of that tradition. Um, people make the text speak in the way that they need it to speak to speak to their issues. So a lot of contemporary Christians find themselves in a situation where those those principles are not things that are particularly relevant or meaningful for them, and so they have different ways of contextualizing them. That, of course, though, wouldn't be happening at a sort of in an amorphous congregational way. The mm-hmm. dominant narratives would be determined, of course, as in mm-hmm. all areas of study and practice by the most influential or in other words the powerful so mm-hmm. the most powerful interpreter the most powerful people's interpretation of what is important about christianity mm-hmm. will become the dominant idea of what christianity is at any particular time well i mean i i would say that power is one of those things that isn't always isn't isn't best conceptualized as something that one group of people or one person has power is an effect of of a set of relationships um, and those relationships are diffuse within within institutions, within communities. Um, anybody who is um, a as a, a leader in a Christian community does have to say things that resonate with the people that are listening. And there's a kind of feedback loop that power isn't just given to pastors or to theologians or to famous writers. That's it's constructed in a dialogue in a relationship between between people and institutions. Um, so an ongoing dialectical relationship, mm-hmm. like sort of. Uh, Deleuze, Kateri, sort of uh, like uh, interpretation of the functions of power, or even a sort of a Foucault. Yeah, I'm thinking more of Foucault in the sense, like that the sort of um, power is something that that moves through different societies, different institutions, at different in different um, channels, and and so the the reason why certain narratives in Christianity are more dominant than others is because they have channeled together institutions and different. Um, different ways of congealing power and authority. Mm. Um, if we uh, apply that, uh, the lens of Foucault to your field, like if I'm, uh, if I understand it correctly, he, mm-hmm. he would regard history as a more of an archeological process as opposed to discovery of a, a sort of absolute truths, more like, and I think you indicated that mm-hmm. early in what you were saying, like there's just one area that's got dug up. Mm-hmm. So this is the area, this is the narrative, you know, and mm-hmm. like that, that sort of popular idea that I learned from podcasts that history isn't, then Napoleon did this. Mm-hmm. And then so and yeah, so yeah. did that, like, you know, history is, could be taken like in loads and loads of different mm-hmm. ways. My, and, and whilst I say, I recognize that power isn't just, you know, sort of Donald Trump is like a series of relationships on uh, institutions and, yeah. uh, you know, through time, I feel like the, the difference is when talking about sort of Christianity is that that well my I assume that for me when we're talking about Christianity or Christ or Buddhism and Buddha or Islam and Muhammad we're dealing with how can we as uh, limited material biological humans mm. deal with the unknown and the potentially the unknowable and the yeah. 
forces and laws that seem to be sort of referred to in in, in the Gospels? How do we use them? How do we utilize them? Rather, than, like I don't see it as political and ethical. I see it mm-hmm. as like how am I to be healed? How am I to become better? Treat people better? Mm-hmm. And it seems that there's a kind of a ongoing tussle that early in Christian history. There's a, a capitulation of the, these uh, early ideas and mm. a sort of a favouring of more pragmatic versions of Christianity, yeah. increasingly more pragmatic, particularly someone from like the UK, like sort of Protestant Church of England kind of mm-hmm. work, you Max Weber style, you mm-hmm. know, good through work type interpretation yeah. of those values. I mean, I guess I would say that like, on on the one hand, there is this there's a kind of there's a kind of narrative that's often told about the history of Christianity that it starts out, I mean, in a sense, kind of a Weberian history. It starts out with charismatic Jesus, and you get um, you know charismatic leader introduces some new idea, and then he dies, and then the movement has to then institutionalize itself. Um, so you might you might put Paul in the position of the institutionalizer, or you might just put kind of a broad swath of early Christianity in this kind of role of institutionalization, and then that kind of crystallizes eventually in the kind of Roman imperial version of early Christianity. Um, and I, I I broadly would say that that narrative is is a false narrative. That Weber Weber's kind of model of of history is really useful, but it's also very it's also a bit reductive. Um, and I would say that, like, on the whole, it's hard to see. There are, there are aspects of, of early Christian traditions that seemed to be what I might call countercultural. Um, they advocated uh, resistance to marriage, advocated, um, in some places, interesting kind of communal experiments in the sharing of resources. Um, there are examples of early Christian communities that are invested in or that seem to be connected to the lower classes in a different way than yeah. other things. But at the same time, every single text that survives from early Christianity is deeply imbued with the kind of cultural values of patriarchy and um, misogyny and um, and sort of problematic theological ideas that kind of under like undergird a lot of the a lot of these these writers that survive from antiquity. Um, and so Christianity was sort of, um, a, a bunch of different movements building lots of different machine machines that trying them out. None of which, none of which look to me like a modern egalitarian movement or or a, a feminist movement or even a kind of radical postcolonial movement. Um, none, there's nothing like that. But it's also not something that one would expect because it wasn't happening anywhere in the yeah. ancient world. Um, there are there are interesting experiments with women's autonomy. Um, so some early Christian communities valued ascetic women who How gave up early? on uh, very, as early as as you as you get. Um, you get examples in Paul's letters of women leaders of women being leaders in his communities. Um, when is that? Is that like seventy hundred years? It's about the forties and fifties. So you know, twenty years or so after fifteen. You know somewhere in 10 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. Um, you do get very early resistance to that, resistance to, to female leadership and to, to women's autonomy um, in the Pauline tradition. So text written, a number of the texts in the New Testament were are written in Paul's name, but not written by Paul. They're written kind of pseudepigraphically. And those texts tend to take a pretty hard line on women um, being submissive to male authority. 
Um, but there are other texts that circulate in the second century where you get strong female characters. The Gospel of Mary is one of those, um, where the denouement of that story has the has the disciples looking like idiots for questioning Mary's authority as the kind of um, um, main disciple of Jesus. Um, and there's a there's a series of, there's a story a series of stories called the Acts of Thecla, where Thecla is this woman who becomes a, a disciple of Paul, but really becomes a kind of autonomous woman in her own right um, by giving up marriage, by giving up her family, and becoming kind of wandering ascetic. Um, she's able to uh, achieve a certain amount of sanctity, power, and um, and autonomy by doing this. Uh, so there are stories that circulate of powerful women in early Christianity, but at the undergirding all of that is a kind of nothing that looks looks today like what we would call feminism or a, or an egalitarian kind of movement. But it would be crazy, as you said, to expect that in the in yeah. the sort of the arcane. Yeah, no, there was world. nothing like that in the ancient world, um, and it's not to say that that we should be okay with that. I mean, that's still kind of a problem, um, but the. Um, but Christianity was always a always a much more complicated animal. It didn't have a kind of teleological journey from kind of a pure origins of egalitarian communal life to this sort of imperial compromise. Because I suppose how could it and how would mm. anything have a teleological journey? I, yeah. I, I suppose that what the challenge is... Like while you're talking, I was thinking, I wonder, Kevin, if you have a kind of a personal intuitive sense of Christ that is, mm -hmm. you know, a, 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 an emotional and spiritual sense, because obviously you're an academic, so you have a great intellectual understanding sort of resourced from, you know, data, you know, like even if that some of that data is questionable. Mm -hmm. The fact is, is that in, so, there's a social function of Christianity, there's a political function of Christianity, and then there's a sort of a, a personal sense that, like, you know, when I think of, like, Christian people that I meet, and it's like this love of Christ, this mm -hmm. manifestation of God. Yeah. What are your feelings about that aspect of it? Because it's very hard, isn't it? When you, yeah. when you sort of say, oh, my God, there was these people, these disciples of Paul, and they were running around doing this, this, and this. And I'm like, wow, fuck, man, this stuff actually happened. This is incredible. Mm -hmm. And then you try to think, wow, actual Jesus. And sometimes when I pray, and I pray about all sorts of stuff and have all kinds of like amorphous and diffuse beliefs about w what God might be and how God may realize God's self. But like my feeling is that um, I would love to feel like, wow, there was Jesus. You know? <laughs> I feel like that would be a cool thing. Yeah. So this is where I, this is where I run into a little bit of a problem in the sense that in the sense that I I have a hard time. I mean, as a historian, part of the issue for me is that I ultimately don't know what we have that gets us back to a historical person, Jesus. Now, I'm not going to be kind of one of these Jesus mythology people. Jesus was a, probably it was a person. He lived in the first century, had a following, did some stuff. Uh, I don't doubt that. Um, but like the the material, the earliest materials that we have of Jesus are are quite far removed. They're Greek, and they're seventy they're, years later, right? Basically, um, and we just, I, I, in a sense, you know, the the historical person of Jesus is is in a is in a cloud bank, a fog bank, and all we really have are some maybe trajectories of lines that could go back to that person. So, um, what I, I mean, what animates me and what what keeps me going at a kind of not just an intellectual level yeah. when I'm studying this material is the idea that um, I find it really fascinating to think about the diversity of 
viewpoints that have um, come, that have emerged and then disappeared and then emerged again and disappeared in all sorts of different complicated and interesting ways in the history of early Christianity. Um, and it, it, when you it, say early, do you mean pre-canonical? Well, yeah, I mean, well, well uh, to get into the canon is a different question because that's a whole complicated uh, bag. But I, well, I mean, good to get most you know, most of what I spend my time on is some somewhere between the first and fifth century. That's most of what that's I early. what I would say. That's what I would when, say. Uh, early. When's the new, When's the New Testament established? So see, that's where it gets that's where it gets complicated. So um, so there isn't really a point where that ever gets. Oh, there's not done. a bunch of guys sit around and go, "This is in, that's out." Not not really. I mean, um, I mean, even even today, there are different there are different New Testaments for different kinds of Christians. So uh, different Bibles for different kinds of of Christians um, with different books and different orders. Significantly different. Yeah, in some cases, yeah. Um, and in antiquity, you can see um, different collections of texts that are not what modern-day Christians use. Um, so there are texts that make it into older collections of scriptures, um, third, fourth century texts uh, or, or, or um, codices that have different books in them. Um, and so Christians weren't always in agreement on what should or should not be in their 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 scriptures. And it really doesn't, I mean, at least in the West, it really doesn't, the, the Bible itself doesn't really start to solidify and be stable as a text until you get to the printing press. Um, so because like King James type stuff. Well, I mean, basically, basically people were just handwriting and co- hand copying Bibles. So you get a lot of variation that MC Hammer did come. I mean, there are, there are examples of like marginal notes that make their way from one version or another into the text. Um, so there, there are, there are chunks of the, there are several, there are several like famous examples of things that were in the King James Bible, for example, the King James version that are not in most other modern translations because, because we've realized since that there are earlier versions of some of these things that don't include that stuff. So, um, so it is the case that there was a lot of editing and reworking of the, the Bible over time. So a good example with this, the book of Acts has uh, a complicated history of transmission such that one set of witnesses is 15% shorter than another. So 15% of the book is sort of could be different depending on which texts you think are older, which version, which copies you think are earlier. Um, so it's a the the Bible itself is a kind of amorphous moving target in the sense that what we when we read it when we pick up a Bible today we're we're picking up a and reading a a, a book that's been edited by modern scholars um, using modern methods to try to figure out what they think is the earliest version, but no copy of the Bible exists outside of that scholarly endeavor. So we don't have any ancient Bible that has is no exactly the same as ours. Like yeah, this, go, this is the original right. one, though. It's that they take thousands of different copies and they try to figure out, compare them all together and be like, well, we think that this wording is in this one is older than the wording in this one, but the wording in this one over here is older than the wording in that one. And then they kind of make a composite text, wow. and that's what gets translated, and that's what gets used in modern translations. So it's such a multidisciplinarian artifact, like mm-hmm. with linguistics and history and yeah. theology. There's so much going on in mm-hmm. there. Like, And I suppose the thing... There's a few things that interest me. Mm-hmm. One is how do you know temporary biological beings mm. interact with divinity, the unknowable, yeah. great power, con- consciousness itself, etc. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I'm interested in is how do people mobilize ideology f- to 
yeah. uh, create dominion and mm-hmm. power. So yeah. those are, when, you know, like a, because it's such a, a vast thing we're dealing with. Um, even within the four Gospels, mm-hmm. what are, are there clear and obvious distinctions? Like, hold on a minute, that's bloody contradictory, even between... Yeah, I mean, if, if, it, it would be hard for me to imagine sitting down with a, with a fresh set of eyes and reading the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John together and thinking that in any way that's the same story. Really? Um, Jesus does a whole bunch of things in John that he doesn't do in the other Gospels. In the, in the Gospel of John, he performs some miracles. He talks a lot about himself. He doesn't he doesn't tell any parables? No wonder I like that one best. <laughs> uh, he doesn't tell any he doesn't tell any parables. I mean, the the point of John is that John is basically just saying Jesus is using a bunch of I am statements to try, try to help you understand who Jesus is. It's only it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus tells stories that he he gives he gives ethical teaching. He casts out demons and does all sorts of all sorts of things. Um, and it, and it comes down to I mean you can you can you can look at it in a different way. Like in there's a famous story of Jesus cleansing the temple, kind of famous famous vignette. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic gospels, and they're called that because they're similar to each other, and they're actually probably literarily related to each other. Um, so um, Mark. What do you mean literarily? So Mark literary. Mark is our earliest written gospel, the gospel of Mark. And it seems to have played uh, a role as a source for the people who wrote Luke and Matthew. Um, And there's some debate about this, um, about exactly how this works. But the kind of prevailing assumption is that both Luke and Matthew looked at Mark, thought, huh, that's a good outline. (laughs) Um, But I'd like to do, I have, I'd like to add more stuff to this and make it a better story. Mark's not really well written. It's a kind of it's written in a really kind of simplistic style. And then style. I went to the park and then I came back. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like that. I mean, it, there's a lot of this like, and now he does this and now he does this. It's very like active verbs, very short sentence, very like very staccato rhythm. Um, Matthew and Luke both look at Mark and think, you know, I can do better than that. I can write something more elegant than that. And they, and they, so they do that. So they're, they're similar store, but they use Mark's basic outline. They change some of the events. They switch some events around, but they basically use his outline. The gospel of John has a, just a completely different storyline. Um, and so the cleansing of the temple in Matthew, Mark, and Luke happens during Jesus's last week. It's like the thing that sets off the, or his arrest and eventual trial and crucifixion. In John, he does it at the beginning of his ministry. Wow. And then like three years go by before anything else happens like in, in that regard. So like the story is in a whole different chronology. From a storytelling perspective, mm-hmm. you can see the value of having the disruption at the temple precipitate in crisis mm-hmm. just yeah. from a storytelling perspective but then also you can see oh that's the this is him setting out his stall mm-hmm. like, i'm the dude that's against stuff in the temple yep. and this almost has more to do with the traditions of storytelling or at least techniques of storytelling which mm-hmm. you seem to be saying might be quite pertinent than it does with any attempt to recreate there was this guy yeah. um but that excuse me that makes me return Kevin, to a mm-hmm. point that we passed through earlier where you said that there was a sort of a 19th century tradition, a Germanic tradition of looking for mythic uh, precedents in mm-hmm. Chris, in the Christian story. But subsequent to that, like I'm like sort of in the, the work of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, which I know some people mm-hmm. in academia think is a bit pop or whatever. Yeah. Like uh, they, we revisit this, these ideas of perennialism and the idea of kind of a, a, a uni- archetypal expression through story mm-hmm. uh, and through, I don't know, theology whatever kind of story mm-hmm. um and for me do what why would you dispute the kind of patterns and 
cor- corollaries that are discovered there? Or, or would you dispute that there is value or that that might be a way to sort of a, a truthier truth in yeah. Jesus than trying to work out some sort of hist- historical narrative mm-hmm. based on, you know, authenticity? So like my, so I would say, I would say this, that like, I, I would agree that there are, um, there are patterns that recur. There are like tropes and, um, and themes and thematics that can recur across a kind of sociocultural, um, frame or, or transhistorically that can be, because they're basically sort of tools that are useful to communicate things. What I would say that concerns me about, say, per, like the kind of perennialism that goes, that kind of connects to like um, people like Joseph Campbell, is that the assumption is that is that those tropes are are part of the kind of a, the essence of religion that exists outside of its instantiation in history. So the the assumption behind the kind of Jungian framework would be to say that there is a kind of what we call real religion or true religion is this sort of subterranean, um, ahistorical, always the same essential set of things that religions are only kind of um, um, manifestations of in the world. And I think that this this assumption that there is a true religion that's out there that we can kind of tap into but that that all the stuff that humans do that we call religion in Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, whatever, are just sort of like historicized or human created attempts to encapsulate that kind of essential thing. I think that that's a problematic a set of assumptions. Um, and, and why? A, well, um, it boils down to the idea that like um, it assumes that we have access to knowing that 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 exists. But it so, also assumes that we don't have access to knowing that, and that's why there's sort of variation, acculturation, and various accents and inflections based on the right. sort of condition, cultural conditions of the time. So the the thing is the the kind of history of the of the history of a kind of perennialist notion of religion. You can kind of trace it um, as it emerges in Western history, and it and it tends to it emerges as in in a in a kind of um, um, intensified form of Protestantism. In the sense that um, Protestantism emerges in a in a in a fight with the Catholic Church over what ends up becoming kind of ritual questions or questions to do with church law and and practice, so the selling of indulgences or or priestly mediation of of between the believer and God, and one and the kind of the innovation, the kind of ideological innovation of of the Protestants is to say that like there should be no mediation between between humans and God. Which means for them that like human-based institutions, churches, that sort of thing, are often considered um, mendacious or problematic. They're they are things that are created by humans to kind of pervert, um, you know, the the go- like the true gospel. Now Protestants end up locating that true gospel in the Bible and a kind of unmediated access to the Bible. But like when when you take that ethos, this idea that, well, the priests are bad and they're the ones and the institutions are problematic um, and that there's a kind of there's a kind of unmediated religion that's available to you if you strip all that away. Um, that's kind of what starts to happen in the Renaissance and in the and in particularly in the Enlightenment period is that people start to imagine a kind of hyper Protestantism for religion more generally. And and so um, basically what's what's happening here is a kind of iter- reiteration of kind of Western Protestantism going 
towards this kind of secularized notion of there being a kind of religion that is that's not tied to any um, specific culture, specific um, historical period that's like tap inable and that's the same for all humans at all times. It's a kind of homogenization and imperialism of a of a kind of Protestant notion of there being a religion that's out there that we can tap into if we just strip away all the human stuff. But doesn't it only become a homogenized a homogenizing force when they say there's this thing it's amorphous and throughout history the story has realized itself in various ways Mm -hmm. but now we can finally tell you that it's (laughs) this version that i'm telling you now and if you don't believe in that you can fuck off and you certainly shouldn't be having sex with people that are the same gender you know Uh know, once it becomes interpretive it's problematic whereas the general idea of say for example the of because what it seems to be saying to me is is that we are dealing with oneness you know in um sort of in hinduism the idea of a uh an infinite oneness from which all form and phenomena is emerging that doesn't sound too far from you know there was a point of energy it explodes creates all you know i mean mm-hmm. that just sounds like as a as an archetype as a paradigm mm-hmm. it has sort of yeah that's an a, like a stamp a template i recognize it's problematic when people start using it to assert like this is why you should be like that and not like that and this mm-hmm. is why this group of people are better at interpreting god yeah. than this group of people but for me, the uh, one thing that could be concluded from perennialism as approach, as an approach, is that however you interpret this, as long as the, what you ultimately uh, derive from it is we should all be being beautiful to one another, let people mm. do what they want, as long as they're not fucking with you, like, like, <laughs> right, yeah. like that, that. It's not a problem, and it only becomes a problem when it's hey, pack that in, mm-hmm. you know, at that Westbury Baptist Church point, say, yeah. Well, probably a lot I mean, earlier than that, but I mean, I'm not going to dispute the fact that we should be nice to each other and be kind and think about and think about those kind of things. That's yeah, that's what else that's, I mean, is there? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's that, that to me is a kind of set of values that I can stick I can stick with. I'm not sure that I can locate that in a kind of essential religion force or whatever that exists in the world. So, like a good example of this is a, a another scholar of religion, a guy named Russell McCutcheon. It takes this uh, uses this. There's this old story that exists out there that like all the religions in the world are, you can conceptualize them as as a bunch of blind people standing in a room with an elephant, and one guy grabs the tail and says, "Oh, I've got a tail over here," and one person grabs the 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 trunk and says, "Oh, this is you know I've got this," and none of them sees the hole that is the elephant, right? That and that's religion. Religion is this kind of thing that everyone's touching and everyone's tapping into but they don't really see the whole of it and there's like one blind people should be touching elephants right okay get out of our zoo (laughs) i mean you shouldn't be in this enclosure very very dangerous situation um but um, what if it gets breaks free of its tethering (laughs) right but but mccutcheon's point is that that's you know that that's often a story that people use to say that religion is fundamentally like one thing and we've all kind of got a little bit of piece little piece of it and um, but the problem is, is that who's the person looking at the room and who can say that there's an elephant there? I mean, it, like that, the assumption that there's a oneness at the core of reality implies that somebody is able to stand outside of that oneness and look back and say, oh, that's there. Um, so I tend to be suspicious of, I tend to be suspicious of attempts to create oneness or to assume that there's a kind of single, single thing at the nature, at the core of reality. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned Deleuze earlier, and I think 
Deleuze and Guattari are, in my mind, a little bit more on the mark of thinking that like reality is fundamentally different. Reality is fundamentally a kind of seething plane of imminence where all sorts of differences are being kind of seething around. And only every so often do you get sort of small pools of order that exist for a time and then they come apart. And I think that reality is is multiplicity rather than oneness. Um, and one could probably do some interesting, I think, intellectual or philosophical or, or spiritual reflection on that. Um, and then, But that's more where I tend to come down. And I think that that manifests itself um, as, as a different way of thinking about how to study the diversities of complex movements like Christianity, like Buddhism. Um, these are the reason why they are complex and why they're why they're different, even though they seem similar in a lot of ways, is because reality is is basically a complicated dance of difference where different things come together all the time to form new and interesting crystallizations, new and interesting machinic forms. Um, and that to me, that's a more interesting and a, in, in, this, in a lot of ways, a, a more beautiful image of why history is full of such diversity. Another thing that happened at the Enlightenment uh, or post-Enlightenment thinking mm-hmm. um, is the um, bias, the sort of um, devotion mm-hmm. to uh, rationalism, materialism, uh, and mm-hmm. I- individualism, which yeah. correlates or sort of preempts this uh, idea of machines making machines and sort of multiplicity. Yeah. Um, when um, Hannah Arendt said that uh, uh, that post fr- post-enlightenment thinking precipitates a breakdown of the civic order, meaning that that there is no public life that we're participating in. We are all just individuals Mm -hmm. living our personal lives in public without any real agency Mm -hmm. other than as brokered by the sort of dominant economic ideas that we live within and the the, the sort of relationships that that creates. For me, that is a reminder of the utility of mythology and philosophy that given that we can never ever actually know whether uh, the sort of the purest interpretation of the universe is one of uh, unity, uh, inclusivity and oneness or diversity, opposition, individualism, atomization, we can't ever know that we can just sort of spot particular patterns with you know with whatever our particular biases are what the limitations of our senses are what the limitations of our consciousness and knowledge and ability to receive knowledge are then when um creating myths or at least uncovering myths and uh, proliferating myths uh it i feel helpful to have a sense of uh purpose and ideals and values now i know from a post uh, structuralist perspective that the the potential for hegemony always exists as soon as we have values and ideals and for me mm. though that challenge really it, 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 it exists in opposition to central petalism and to to, to uh, central all forms of centralization really mm-hmm. ra- rather than um rather than it's not for me that's not a challenge to that the idea of us being able to find a true purpose real values uh genuine truth mm-hmm. but 
as long as we divert before the point we go, this is the centralized truth, everyone get in line with this version. You know, like if we lived a more um, sort of tribal, anthropologically understood version of uh, civilization without sort of systems of dominance continually fostered and created, then wouldn't uh, the, the idea of all of us having individual truths, little collective truths where we're able to express ourselves as little human mammals with access mm -hmm. to the divine instincts and attributes that are difficult to understand as well as pretty mundial needs. You know, but do, do you think that you can reach that place from either point, from the sort of uh, mul uh, the, the place of difference and multiplicity mm -hmm. or the place of oneness? Um, I'm, sus I'm, I'm suspicious of the one. I'm suspicious of the one as a kind of total potential totalitarianism. That to me is always a um, threatening at Why? the edge. What's happened? <laughs> What's happened? <laughs> um, I mean, the one is the is the is the force that tries to homogenize. The one is the force that tries to say we have to all be the same. That all humans are 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 the same, and that difference doesn't matter. Um, and usually that's an argument for one form of human humanness is better than others. And, but I don't um, think it has to be. Like, I mean, I was straying somewhat from the sort of field of the, the study of historical Christianity, oh, no. but you said that this is the sort of methodology that mm -hmm. you like to use, yeah. like these sort of post-structural thinkers mm -hmm. who, what another might really love and admire. Right. But for me, that it kind of, it leads to, for me, that sort of deconstruction leads to a place of, great possibility openness challenging narratives and constructs of mm -hmm. dominion but it doesn't lead to uh, annihilation and nihilism it doesn't mm -hmm. I, I i don't stop there because yeah. i i feel like i believe in the possibility of human beings to create systems where our differences can be embraced. That might not happen globally, I recognize, mm -hmm. when you have some people that are wedded to particular ideals that are directly oppositional to... Yeah. You know. But the, for me, the the possibility or like that, that, that we are essentially the same mm -hmm. embraces simultaneously the, mm -hmm. the different ways that that is expressed in the same way that you know me and you are different but you know, lungs kidneys right. breath death <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I guess i would say that like so maybe i would come at it from a different angle so like i would i would say that i i am suspicious of of the i'm a suspicious of the one because i'm suspicious of one market one capitalism one form of governance neoliberal democracy i'm suspicious of those drives the drive to oneness and i'm also i'm also I, I'm also suspicious of the idea that we need to have a kind of one one humanity to be able to form coalitions and to recognize the value in other humans, because we're not you're not we're not just human. We are many different things. We are a complex assortment of agents. We are made up of bacteria and and organs that have different functions and are doing all sorts of different things. Like I am a I am a corporation of entities that makes me function right now. I'm not one person. I'm a whole bunch of things. But and, you're able to cooperate to the point where you can confidently right. speak from the from the yeah. uh, you know But we yeah, but we're cooperating, right? We're cooperating as different things. And and that's what makes me able to speak and think and function as a yeah, as an so, organism. So, so they're like the 
difference um, is that that becomes, if not redundant, not particularly relevant because mm-hmm. there is a kind of hegemony to you speaking from the position of an individual. You're not going to say, I'm going to ask yeah. my toes what they think and what, what are my lungs reckon right now. We're going to yeah. say that like, the general sense is preserve the oneness of me while recognising that there's billions of cells and magnetic, electromagnetic yeah. forces that, you know. I wouldn't say the oneness of me. I would say that the, the swarm that is me, the kind of collective that is me. I am a collective. And I think, so, I mean, I think that we can't get out of building systems. We have to build systems. Um, Foucault would say there's no externality to power. There's no point at which you get out of the problem of having to deal with relationships of institutions and people and groups. Um, but like, I, I tend to, I tend to think like along the lines of say, like Judith Butler, who would say that, that organizing and collectives can emerge around difference rather than necessarily around, um, around sameness. Um, and that um, we might find ourselves more able to build new systems or to resist dominant systems if we don't sort of try to kind of come down on there must be one kind of essence that we all share. Like it might be worthwhile to organize around one set of differences um, and use that as a as a leverage point to change certain kinds of, of systems to resist larger. Can you larger... see that actually working? It seems so sort of mechanical, and it, it, particularly if even from mm-hmm. a materialistic and evolutionary perspective, there yep. was unity. There were you know even in the most blunt physical terms, <laughs> one explosion. Mm-hmm. Even in the most blunt biological terms, one cell. Mm-hmm. You know there 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 is origin now i mean un- unless we want to start challenging the sort of ideas of the, like the temporal and mm. spatial like you know fundamental ideas that we mm. believe in presumably because of the limitations of our you know primate experience mm-hmm. now, there is a it seems to me yeah. that th- that there is a journey that there is an origin i'm just talking in the most materialistic yeah. terms i mean I mean, I, I guess, I guess I would. I mean, I'm not a biologist, so I'm not going to be able to speculate on that kind of stuff. Like, it's just not outside, outside of my my area. But like, I I tend to think of um, um, I, I read a lot, I, I read a lot and have been working a lot with the work of Bruno Latour, who's a, a, a French historian of science or anthropologist of science, um, amongst Bernard other things. Latour. Bruno Latour. Bruno Latour. Um, and Latour talks about kind of uh, wants to pay attention to the way in which um, um, things change because not just not just of what humans are doing, but because of human interactions with and alliances with non-humans and different kinds of entities that are not that are not that are objects, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a kind of a whole there's a whole new strain of the humanities that's trying to think about um, how to re re describe societies um, as. Um, systems that involve human and non-human human humans and objects as um, things that are co-evolving and kind of are all in a kind of kind in a kind of becoming together um, as as a way of rethinking politics as a way of rethinking how to organize a rethinking just how we describe um, the nature of reality um, and so I, I do think that the history of humanity is actually a history of the entities that we call humans, um, co-opting all sorts of other agencies to change their societies, to change their mode of living, um, to extend their selves. I mean, we we have f- phones now that are basically extensions of ourselves. Um, like who I am is mediated in a lot of ways by the stuff that comes through this device that I carry around in my pocket and in my hand. Um, we are not just bounded by these, we're not just bounded into these sort of single entities. We are a, a, 
a mess, a complicated swarm of all sorts of human and non-human elements. Um, and I think that that's just the nature of how how the the ecosystem that we live in has developed. And to presume that there's a kind of singularity to that or a single origin story to that or a single telos that comes from that, um, to me, doesn't totally describe the complexities of how how history unfolds in a kind of series of becomings. Yes, and I think it will be next to impossible to describe that uh, the the complexity of that. But in, even again, from a physical perspective, if we're describing the concept of a swarm, if we get into the cellular and the subcellular and the particular mm -hmm. and subparticular realm, then our ability to uh, understand our ability to understand is for me like, uh, our ability to understand breaks down and, and the boundaries the taxonomies all start to dissolve mm -hmm. and when all taxonomies dissolve mm -hmm. what is there <laughs> limitless oneness <laughs> <laughs> or or just a whole bunch of stuff that has yet to be boxed into things you know um yes i mean so, our, our, like yeah. i suppose our uh, uh, to bring subjectivity to phenomena mm -hmm. you know that like that does require that's you know there is me and there's outside of me there's apparent inside and outside do you meditate or have you ever taken any powerful hallucinogens i, I have i have meditated before yeah mm. um i've not taken anything that i would describe as a powerful hallucinogen but um i'm definitely not substance free but yeah <laughs> uh, right yeah because for my experiences of reality mm -hmm. uh, alter, like the mm -hmm. my, you know, like mm -hmm. I suppose, like in post death experiences in life. I suppose what I'm saying is, is that sometimes through meditation, I like I move beyond my individual self, to which I sort of magnetically return, mm -hmm. whatever that swarm is, whatever the. Hmm, it's interesting because I feel like, in a sense, we've got similar intentions and similar understandings. But mm. I am cynical about the possibility of generating real change without recourse to the divinity, the sublime, or some galvanizing force that brings mm. people together while respecting difference. And it seems that you're skeptical about the idea of that that, that idea. I'm ske I, I'm skeptical of a kind of of a of a oneness that doesn't that isn't tied to any particularity. So so I would say that like um I would say that I'm what I would be looking for are like what are provisional points of alliance? Like what are provisional um events to remain I mean in Elaine Badiou's terms of provisional events that one has to remain faithful to as a mode of political organizing. Um and as opposed to kind of girding a kind of politics in something that is not a historical and and um and um and not tied to any any particular context um the sort of notion of divinity so to me it would to me it seems like we would find um a a greater platform for organizing if we were to say that like we are going to rally around fighting for the rights of undocumented immigrants like that is going to be the 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 event of that the focus of that is something that we are going to organize ourselves around but regardless of whether we are those the you know? terrible lack of success in all of these areas <laughs> like, right, uh, right whether it's ecology and i would yeah. say that's because mm -hmm. if if you say you see them immigrants you know mm -hmm. they look different they are you 
their mm. experience of reality, in spite of its cultural inflections and accents, is the same as your experience of being you. Mm. By allowing their suffering, you mm. are suffering. There is no distinction. You are a concept held together mm. in your own head. Let's celebrate and experience our oneness. If you can make people viscerally feel that, if you can get people mm. out of their intellect and into their emotion and into their spirit, mm. then... Yeah. There's a possibility. Like, what's the point in politics if it only ever exists on the level of the theoretical, if it never becomes action, if it never comes revolution, if it never comes radicalization and absolute change, which it, we can observe it will not mm -hmm. using the current techniques and methods because we're watching them play it in real time. You know, Greta Thunberg yeah. trotted around and moved about and, oh, yeah, look, she's great, isn't she? And yeah. now let's continue with the nothing. <laughs> you know, like, right. you know like, it's not doing anything because it's, it's, uh, there needs to be a frequency jam. It needs to be a tr real transition. Obviously, like yeah. people like you and I that seem to have the sort of same general sense that the establishment needs to be challenged, I've got to find a way of, you know, because I spoke to Yanis Varoufakis once and he said, like, um, I'm an atheist. He goes, I believe that matter precedes consciousness. You clearly believe that consciousness preceded matter. But the fact is that, uh, you know, spirit, consciousness, those things are all here now. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to have to deal with them in some way. And my sense is that the power, the energy, the, the, you know, that can create change, that can create work, is not going to come from people sort of saying, let's deal with undocumented immigrants or ecology or even corporate corruption or homelessness or anything. But if we can recognize, ah, oh, the temporary veil, the, mm -hmm. this, this cannot be our priority, the belief that I am me, the belief that you are you, the belief that is America is America, all these constructs, all these concepts. Mm -hmm. If we live in unconscious devotion to these illusions, then we're never, ever going to create difference. And, and, and mm -hmm. I think it leads in the end to a kind of a defeatism to sort of stay on that rational bandwidth because it's like you know, it's, we're going to dick around with the pawns when we should be <laughs> smashing the bishops and kings and queens oh. through. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not saying that I'm advocating for a kind of rationalized notion of of fidelity to to any. What I, what I would say is that like to to recognize. I mean, one of the things that like Badiou would say about what political organizing needs to look like is to say that um, is that the it's the it's the remaining faithful to the eruption of something into a into a stable system that was not counted before, but was always there. And remaining faithful to that becomes an anchor point for political organizing, for radical politics. I think there's actually something really interesting that's, it's not, it's not a rationalizing of like, of political calculus. It's a, um, how do we pay attention to what is the thing that's there what is the the people, the group, the idea, the problem that's been there all along that we've never seen? And that is somehow we need to sort of pay attention to and organize around because that's the thing that the, the current iteration of the system can't see, but that's undergirding it. And in, in some ways, like the, 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 the figure of the undocumented immigrant, right, is, is that. It's this sort of, it's, the, it's this, this um, labor market that we try to hide and we pretend doesn't exist, that we try to, um, that, but that's still undergirding the, the kind of capitalism that we participate in. Yes. And that now we're putting people into cages to hide, to hide this stuff from. I mean, identifying with that and shining a light on that and organizing around that 
might be a way to invigorate a different kind of politics. I would also argue that the the you know people, relationships, groups, institutions that uh, mm-hmm. operate powerfully yeah. don't give a fuck about right. about the yeah. about mm-hmm. the so you know and that's sort of problematic. So yeah. in a sense, like that eruption, the eruption of something that always was present. The, for me, that would be a. a the realization of love and love merely as a kind of acknowledgement that the connection between things is more important than the separation and distance while acknowledging that there is mm-hmm. there are so many minute differences but the, the, the what we have in common is what will save us mm-hmm. not at the expense of what distinguishes us but then mm-hmm. i'm a religious maniac <laughs> <laughs> hey that's so fantastic i've learned yeah. so much from that i did want to get into more and more detail, but we've had our conversation for 60 minutes. I'd love to talk to you again, mm-hmm. Kevin, because, like, yeah, we've, you've got a lot of data there. Yeah, anytime you want to have me back, I'd love to. It was, it was great. Fun. Yeah. It was real great. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. We went on a long journey there. There was a bit where I was talk- <laughs> thinking about Aramaic speaking Jesus and how far away he is, and was he a political radical? Was he a great mystic? But then, ah, yeah. oh, you know, we're so limited in what we can see. Cool. <laughs> thank you yeah i hate to be a downer on that but you know <laughs> no, that's not, it's not well, a downer because i something for me their belief yeah. is be, uh, that it's bigger than me yeah <laughs> cool <laughs> thank man god, thank god <laughs> um all right that's wicked thank you for listening to under the skin with me and kevin concannon there let me know what you thought of it on instagram or uh, Twitter, or uh, any of those platforms. I'm basically known as Russell Brand. Remember, I'm coming to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States with my new show, Recovery Live. Tickets are available right now. Go to russellbrand.com and get them. Also, I'll be in Santa Barbara on the 12th of February, the California Jam on Costa Mesa on the 14th of February, and San Diego on the 19th of February. Come see me. You can get tickets at russellbrand.com, of course. If you want to get this information direct right up your inbox, then uh, you know, go to russellbrand.com, sign up for it right now. If you're a bit bored, go back and listen to me talking to Professor Alistair McGrath. He was real Christian. Like, listen to that after this. It'll knock your bandy. And then uh, and have a listen to Brian Cox as well. Who doesn't like the gentle mellifluousness of Brian Cox? Man, I'm tired. Keep checking my YouTube channel and, uh, you know, stay in touch with me. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.